The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the web. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's a local attorney and certified information privacy professional. She's the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity, From Victim to Victor, and The Complete Idiot's Guide to Recovering from Identity Theft, She's testified many times in Congress and the California Legislature on privacy and identity theft issues. And you may have seen her on Dateline, 48 Hours, CNN, NBC, ABC, O'Reilly Factor, and many other shows, including her own 90-minute PBS television special, Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this radio show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash privacy piracy. Hey, Mari, what's our show about today? Well, today our show is about data privacy, and we are welcoming back a woman that we've had on in the past, and I've actually worked with her in the past. She's wonderful, Dominique Shelton Lespig, and she is uh, doing great work in privacy. And when I tell you a little bit about what she's doing, she, uh, privacy and cybersecurity attorney Dominique Shelton Lespig co-chairs the firm's AAD Tech Privacy and Data Management Group, and she provides strategic privacy and cyber preparedness counseling to her clients who are mostly uh, businesses. And she defends, consoles, and represents companies on privacy, global data security compliance, data breaches, and investigations with an eye toward helping clients to really avoid litigation since that's definitely something that a company doesn't need. Dominique frequently conducts trainings for senior leadership, corporate boards, and audit committees regarding risk identification and mitigation in the areas of privacy and cybersecurity. You can find out more about her at perkinscooey.com slash dshelton-lacepeg, and that's spelled L-E-I-P-Z-I-G, and also at our website at privacypiracy.org. Dominique, thank you so much for joining us again. Thank you for having me, Marie. I'm so excited to be talking with you about everything that's going on and what we're going to dig into here about privacy in 2019. Yes, yeah, so much has been happening continuously, right? I mean, we met years ago, and it's, it was crazy then, and it's still crazy and even crazier. So with data, with privacy and data security on front page issues all over the place, what is the single piece of advice that you would give to companies and individuals listening to us today? All right. Thank you for asking me that. And, you know, also Happy New Year. <laughs> um, I, you know, this year, uh, 2019 is already uh, getting started with a bang um, on the heels of last year's, um, you know, sort of uh, sea change as it relates to the effective date for GDPR and then the enactment of the California Consumer Privacy Act at the CCPA, which is the, you know, sort of broadest um, privacy statute in the U.S. Um, to date. Um, you know, 2019 kicks off with, you know, with 
really a lot of energy. So on January 2nd, uh, New Mexico uh, just introduced a bill that is very similar to the California Consumer Privacy Act and sort of following in the same vein as the GDPR. Um, we also have New York um, t- uh, that uh, introduced legislation on January 9th um, at, uh, you know, regarding this issue. Um, so this is sort of fresh off the the presses. We understand that legislation is anticipated to be reintroduced um, that's very similar to the California Consumer Privacy Act um, in, uh, in Maryland. I, I want to just take a little step back um, to talk about New York, that the, the New York bill is almost, uh, you know, very similar, almost carbon copy of the uh, initial initiative that was um, introduced in California um, uh, that predated um, the California Consumer Privacy Act and, and precipitated the act going into the legislature. So at this point in time, I think we need to look at um, the heightened attention to consumer privacy and data security, um, you know, that's heightened through either um, if, whatever's in the news, whether it be uh, a a tracking of uh, consumers or users um, for purposes uh, related to advertising or uh, political issues or it's data security where you have millions of records that um, are, you know, out um, on the dark net. The point is, I mean, at this point in time, um, there's really sort of a heightened awareness on on the part of consumers. And I pointed out to just say that my single piece of advice to to companies um, operating in this environment is to sort of flip the, the, the script a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, we've been talking in terms of data as this sort of compliance uh, toothache, if you will, of all the things that companies need to do to comply with, at first, Europe, uh, the European GDPR, and then California law. And now, as we're seeing this sort of tidal wave, additional um, uh, you know legislation that's um, on the horizon. And rather than looking at it that way, um, there's an opportunity to marry um, sort of uh, business goals, um, that, you know, dig- digitization and digital transformation are something that you hear a lot about on, um, you know, the company's, um, you know, sort of missions and goals for development. And if we start thinking about data itself as a pre-tangible asset, in this sort of post-data world that we're in, um, companies can take a different approach to their data that I think will have very a positive impact with respect to mission, uh, sort of critical goals for the for the company, as well as safeguarding data. So, if you think, um, you know, in those terms, it's, a, it's another fresh way to sort of look at the compliance question and sort of turn it on its head and get back in line with with business objectives. So are you also saying to to use the data privacy as a uh, value added for the company to kind of go out and be proactive and say, this is what we do to protect you and this is what how we value your data? Is that what you're thinking like to kind of say, okay, instead of like, oh God, we got to be compliant about it, use it as a value added that we are over and above doing good work as good, um, you know, custodians of your of your data? Is that what you're talking about? That's a part of it. But um, when I use the term, you know, data as a pre-tangible asset, it's actually even broader than that. Um, you know, much like uh, oil and gases to, a, you know, an energy company when it's, you know, in the ground and it hasn't been realized yet, 
data is an asset to companies, um, and in many respects, uh, these days, not yet fully leveraged. So, you know, if you start thinking about the data itself as an asset, what would you normally do with an asset? You would leverage the asset, monetize it, you know, you leverage it by figuring out what products you can build with it, what services you can provide, um, how you can re be responsive to consumer demand, um, monetizing, that's part of the same, you know, effort, how, you know, what data do you have that really fits in with the business goals that um, could be monetized, that you could create products that companies are, I mean, that consumers could be interested in, you're going to build with the data if you're missing information to be able to to say operate a cogent AI, you know, artificial intelligence program or machine learning, you'll see what data you're missing. Um, maybe you need to get involved, and the company needs to get involved in uh, M&A to be able to fill those gaps. Um, and then you want to sustain the data that you need, but, you know, get rid of what you don't need. Right. Inventory what you have, just like any other asset. You want to know what you have, ensure it properly, protect it properly, and of course, you Delete know, Delete it properly, point, what you don't need. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, but I mean, and to your point, um, comply, you know, certainly if it's a mission critical asset of a company, yeah. um, rarely, you know, the there it's regularly reported to the board, the C-suite is all over it, there are, you know, um, it's unusual that a company would, you know, miss um, a legal requirement and just not know about it or, um, you know, somehow do anything illegal with their asset. So similarly, if we start looking at data as an asset, that issue of compliance and many, you know, to your point, being a good citizen and so forth will kind of be a natural um, evolution of really wanting to protect your asset and your brand and everything associated with it. But, you know, what I was really, you know, driving at with data as a pre-tangible asset, I mean, there's some examples out there. So, um, for example, uh, uh, Samsung, for example, has um, uh, some reports about them last year and um, in uh, some of the digital uh, tech reports about how they use social listening uh, data. So a lot of marketing teams um, in companies have social listening tools where they can listen how the client, uh, their company's uh, products are being talked about on social media and so forth. And these days, as you know, a lot of people do assert um, complaints about a product or uh, suggestions for product development in, you know, rather than calling the help desk of the company or, you know, reporting it as a, in a suggestion box on the website, their first place is on Instagram or Facebook or elsewhere to, um, you know, um, lay out um, their concerns or their suggestions. And so social listening tools are very prevalent. Now, um, you know, marrying those social listening tools with not just how to message the marketing, but also getting that data in the hands of the product teams. They could actually be customizing products that are uh, for which there's a demand. That's a just a general alignment that, you know, uh, would be value add to the business right. um, to be able to, to, to learn from that, uh, those things and whether, you know, whatever the, 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 the consumers are talking about. So um, there's a role in each of these buckets, leveraging, monetizing, building I mean, you know, if you're leveraging in your product development stage with data, obviously privacy and compliance is a component and, and, and security are components of that, but it's better to do that at the inception. Um, you know, as we talked about, uh, you've talked about many times, Mari, you know, privacy by design at the inception of product right. development when you're leveraging that asset right. to build that in at the beginning. If you're going to be monetizing and looking at ways to, um, you know, uh, 
either sell or otherwise engage with the product, um, you know, there again, there's a role for compliance. Um, building, if for M&A, you know, we've starting to see more and more um, privacy and data security due diligence um, included in the M&A process. And if that becomes just part of the a part of the issue um, of treating your asset as, um, you know, data itself, the data itself as an asset, um, you can start seeing how um, the mindset shifts so that the appropriate resources are allocated. Um, you know, the, the concern and the issue is that um, at this point in time, data is so massive um, it, it's really not a compliance alone. Um, you know, one chief privacy officer or one CISO, it, it's very difficult to tackle, um, you know, sort of the massive amount of regulation with being completely divorced from business goals and sort of bringing these things in alignment. So, like, as I mentioned, if you have an asset, you're going to want to inventory your assets and know what you have. That's for any business. But that inventory function, of course, is the groundwork for GDPR, you know, EU general data protection regulation compliance, the groundwork for cybersecurity uh, compliance if you're looking at NIST or, you know, FTC guidance in that regard or ISO standards. It's, it's also the groundwork for, you know, figuring out what data that you have that pertains to particular, you know, local jurisdictions, whether it's California or if it's China or, you know, Singapore or elsewhere. You've got to inventory the data. That's kind of a, a basic compliance thing, but it's also right. something that you need to do with your assets. Right. So why not have have these things start, instead of being, you know, digital transformation, and we hear a lot of those buzz terms, digital transformation or digitizing the business happening on one end, completely divorced from compliance, and then compliance on the other end, sort of being seen as this drain and being understaffed and so forth, if we can get everything in alignment, because this is the way things are going, be more productive for companies, you know, and by the way, they might find things, hey, we're buying the same data seven times. Why do we have uh, different divisions doing this um, once an inventory is done and they can start sharing information within the company about how data is really being used and um, it, it doesn't even align with the strategic goals. You know, Do we need to spend all this money on cloud storage for data that we don't need and shelf life was over you know, right. two years ago? Right, right. These are the kinds of discussions that they can feed into each other if the inventories that are being done on the compliance side, you know, a walk down the hall to the digital transformation teams, um, you know, informs a discussion about how can we make this inventory as productive and in line with business goals, obviously meeting legal compliance, but how do we get in line with business goals too? Well, it seems to me that's a great idea to be able to see the duality of it, that yes, we've got to be compliance, but yes, this is our asset. But it seems like a lot of the companies, they don't have these groups that get together like you, you know, seems like the privacy officer or the security officer or both of them would be great co-chairs to kind of bring everybody together and mediate that whole thing so that, you know, marketing understands what the legal issues are and all of the development, uh, the areas that are the developers that they get together. So everybody has to be kind of uh, interdisciplinary. It reminds me, I, I sit on a privacy console for 3M, and that's what they do. They get together and they they brainstorm. How can we use this product differently? You know, with the Post-its was originally put together to try and have a very strong adhesive, but look at how it 
turned out to be something that everybody used post-its that it's not, you know, a, a strong adhesive. It can be used at all different places. You just use your post-it. And, um, and so that, that's such an important issue you're talking about is are they really talking and collaborating or is this unit separate from this unit and really never the twain shall meet? That's... Well, see, that's why I get to, you know, to your point, that's why I get to this idea of, you know, a sea shift or, you know, a sort of a sea change yeah, yeah. <laughs> in how data is seen. Um, and so if we go away from the silos of compliance on the one hand right. and digital transformation on the other, and in fact, do what you said in your example um, on the, the council that you're on that 3M does, collaborating, pulling these efforts together. And um, I think one great way to start is by, you know, a, an initial education to, you know, board members, CEOs, you know, board members such as yourself, like cer- certain companies know to get experts such as yourself on uh, their boards. Others don't know that. And so they get reports periodically from a CISO or maybe a chief privacy officer. But transforming this so that there's a message that goes out to senior leadership, this is what it requires to have a data strategy. Right. Um, It's not a question of compliance on the one hand and digital transformation and product development on the other. It's a question of melding these and developing a strategy for data that see, that, it, that envisions the data itself as being um, extremely powerful, you know, the powerful engine that it, that it is. You know, someone just recently reminded me of something that's not even, a, you know, we're talking about this uh, post-data world, and I, I used that word earlier intentionally, right. because at this point in time, you know, it doesn't need to be 3M, it doesn't need to be a big tech company. Every single company, um, you know, really almost every single company on the globe is a data company. And what I mean by that, in one way or another, they're storing data in a cloud, they have a file server, they're connected to the Internet. I mean, uh, they might be taking care of HR through a third-party service provider that's cloud-oriented. They're doing payroll through, uh, um, uh, you know, um, third parties, that even if they don't do it on their their own systems, third parties that uh, are in cloud environments. And so at this point in time, you know, there's – the idea of a brick-and-mortar company just doesn't exist. Now, the learnings that are there, um, it's, you know, that if, if somebody really sat and analyzed the data, the information is there. Um, and a lot of companies are trying or want to get into efficiencies as it relates to artificial intelligence and machine learning. All of that it depends. I was just talking to um, a, a a developer today, you know, all of the, that work for a number of retailers, you know, all of this depends on having really good data in so that you have something that's cogent that comes out as far as machine learning and artificial intelligence. So if you want to digitize, say, the, you know, the, um, the operations aspect of a business, say you're a retailer and you want to know how, when is our product, um, you know, how quickly do we need to restock, how quickly do we need to manufacture just the back end um, to keep the margins together. If if the data is bad going in, you can't really give a, a you know a good assessment going out. So for right. even you know good use of new tools that create efficiency, um, you can't really take advantage of those if you're if an inventory of the data has not happened along the way. So trying to marry these things that they're not they are probably if you know people lift, lifted the hood and actually talked to uh, those. 
of, of folks that work in companies. So they actually talk to the different divisions in the company that would find that, you know, some discussion about machine learning has probably already happened. Some discussion with about sensors and artificial intelligence probably already happened. Cloud environments probably already going on. Social listening, your marketing team's probably already doing that, but nobody's discussed it collectively. And having sort of a data strategist yeah. that can help sort of quarterback all this and get everything together is needed. But I think the first education really has to happen at the senior, you know, sort of C-suite level that this needs to be, data needs to be managed just like any other asset. And I was reminded of this story just recently as I was talking about this. Excuse me. Um, I was, sorry, this is my... um, take the speaker out of here. Um, They, um, I was reminded about this example um, that's not even a data company, but um, there was a, uh, some of you might remember in the 80s, uh, OAG, which was this um, sort of company that was just went around to all the airlines and asked for their scheduling data, you know, about when planes took up planes took off and arrived and just, just the schedules. And in the mid eighties, they came around, um, got the data from the airlines, which, because the airlines thought their core business was getting passengers to and from a different city and selling tickets and everything associated with that. Um, and so this data that related to the schedules just was seen as sort of like an afterthought. It's there, but it wasn't really working for the airlines. So OAG went and got all that data. And, you know, by the mid nineties had, um, you know, revenues over, um, you know, American Airlines, for example. I mean, now it's on, it's digitized. It's, it forms the back end of a lot of the mobile apps for the airlines. And so you've got a reverse situation where they're more valuable um, with the airlines' data than the airlines themselves. And you've got airlines who have mobile apps that are now licensing back their own data <laughs> to be able to make it. So, you know, yeah. this is, um, you know. Creative thinking, the, right. Thinking beyond yeah, the box. Yeah. But you know, I think if companies don't look at their data as an asset, they're all vulnerable to, you know, something very similar. That's a, a not a I – I use that example intentionally as a, not a digital example to kind of give the importance of getting a handle of uh, on having a strategy, especially in the post-data world that we're in now. Right. So, you know, we're talking about these exciting opportunities, but then there's like the general protection data regulations, right? So um, – yeah. That puts some constraints on, you know, who owns the data, right? So how does that all kind of go with your idea, which I think is a wonderful idea, but how does that all mesh together? How do you do that? Well, the thing is, is that, you know, this goes back to, you know, what I was talking about are sort of the benefits and silver lining of uh, taking a, a, you know, an approach to data as an asset. But, you know, to your point, as as we open the program, the the reality is, you know, kind of the stick in this, um, you know, the carrot is all the things that are beneficial to the company in terms of treating it as a a pre-tangible asset and recognizing, you know, their status in a post-data world. But the reality is, as you said, um, you know, companies kind of have to do this, um, this, that's the stick, right? So, you know, GDPR with its massive potential for fines of, you know, 4% of global turnover, which translates to gross sales, um, or 20 million euro, whichever is higher for many of the violations, you know, the reality is that is the stick. Now, what are we seeing in enforcement since May 25th? Well, 
you know, so far, the fines have not been uh, overwhelming. I think, you know, there was an Austrian fine and um, a uh, uh, $400,000 fine recently from another one of the DPAs, but I think that's the highest we've seen so far. But this is still, you know, trickling in. The important thing for companies to realize with respect to GDPR enforcement is that, you know, they don't have a, necessarily a culture of collective actions or class action history to really draw upon when you start talking about representative actions that are permissible under Article 80 of the GDPR. But what we're seeing is a little sort of a litigation um, issue is that there are thousands of data subject right complaints that have been you know filed with various data protection supervisory authorities all across the EU and in the first instance many of them have been based on you know the invalidity or attacking consent um, under article 7 and they say well you know there's just they haven't met the standard of giving enough choice to the users to really call it valid consent and you know a lot of companies especially those engaged in marketing data like websites and cookies and mobile apps may have decided that they were relying on another valid legal basis for processing the data, not mm-hmm. not based on consent, maybe on legitimate interest, um, which the GDPR does envision for marketing data. So companies, again, without a, necessarily a, a clear strategy, um, they're getting data subject rights requests in the EU kind of from everywhere, some of them on their website, some of them on phone, some of them by mail. The different divisions haven't been really trained on how to respond. And many of the companies, just wanting to be as helpful as possible, will say, you know, they'll get a data subject rights request from an individual consumer that says, delete all my data because I've withdrawn consent. Mm. And to be, you know, sort of, uh, again, I'll I'll say, I'll use the term, no good deed goes unpunished, um, (laughs) to be as helpful as possible, the companies say, yes, we will delete all your data and we'll have that done in 30 days only to find out later that when they get these supervisory complaints, because the supervisory authorities have been overwhelmed, and so just you know recently have companies started getting copies of the complaints that were filed against them way back in July or you know August, and those complaints lay out, well, you know, maybe there were 200 requests made to the to mm. the company, but they didn't realize it because they didn't have a central repository to, to handle all those requests. Wow. The companies, you know, responded, the, the different reps and so forth have responded differently. Um, you know, to all of them, none, nobody preserving defenses to say, hey, you know, we're, we're happy to do this in 30 days, but we're not processing your data based on consent just to let you know. So what comes back in these complaints is um, – a recitation that the company concedes that they were processing the data based on consent because there's been X number of data subject rights requests that were made against the company, let's say, you know, 200 or 300. And in every instance, the company just said, we'll respond or they didn't respond in time. Mm. But no one ever said we're processing on another valid legal basis. So if the company now contends it was processing based on something else, we want to see the Article 30 report. Mm-hmm. Sometimes the Article 30 report, I mean, to your point, or to the point I was making earlier, to try to meld the you know data uh, goals. So if your inventory contained a little, some other information, you know, about my, what might be useful, more specifics about the data, how it could be used for some of you know leveraging purposes or monetizing or whatever, then you've got a, an awkward situation where basically a demand for that you know very sensitive you know business critical data has now been made um, and might come out in the context of a um, you know an investigation from a regulatory authority. So these are all competing things. So it's very important for companies to really think about uh, enforcement, um, even though there have only been, you know, I think uh, very hand- just a handful, four or five 
uh, fines, you know, 20,000 euro, 10,000 euro, 400,000 euro that are not significant yet, but to understand that this is, we're just at the inception of enforcement and um, to develop systems now to start, you know, getting a central repository together for, for responding to these requests, making sure the responses are consistent and accurate with what your Article 30 statement said. Again, communication and making sure that the folks who are getting these requests are trained to use the central repository so that the company can be consistent. And that goes back to your inventory too. Not only what you know, what are you collecting, but what was your purpose in collection? That would help you also <laughs> if you made Absolutely. that really clear. So you know, it goes it's all intertwined, like what you were talking about. Well, we only really have another minute, and I wanted to get to the uh, California Consumer Privacy Act, which is right here in California, where both you and I are. But I think we're going to have to have you come back, which is okay. which is great because um, there's so much going on. I know you recently went to the California AG's first public hearing for rulemaking and all that stuff. So I think that's what we're going to have to do. So if you could give your website, and then it's really time to go. Well, absolutely. So first of all, thank you so much for having me, Mari. I really enjoyed having this opportunity to speak with you. And um, those who are listening, if you want to know more about um, the California Consumer Privacy Act, visit our firm's website. It's uh, perkinscoie, P-E-R-K-I-N-S-C-O-I-E.com backslash C-C-P-A. There we have a survey, actually, a benchmark survey that companies can fill out to um, identify how far along they are in their CPA compliance. And they also, um, we created a portal for companies to provide comments about um, the law and their thoughts about the law. So um, if there are issues that protect, particularly impact your industry, let us know. Um, and we will be preparing those reports and giving them to the California Attorney General's Office. So this is a time for businesses to be really active and uh, have their voices heard in the AG rulemaking process, which is ongoing. The first public hearing was uh, just recently here on um, January, on, uh, January 8th. 8th. Yeah. And it will continue till the end of, uh, till, till mid-February. So, so uh, Dominique, yeah, we got to go, but I definitely okay. want to have you come back. So we will we'll set it up because you are just a wealth of information and we so appreciate all the great work that you're doing as well so thank you so much and we will have you back again thank you so much Mari. it was a okay, pleasure talk to you later okay. bye-bye bye-bye you've been listening to kuci 88.9 fm and irvine and kuci.org on the net i'm Mari frank join us every monday morning and visit our website at privacypiracy.org thanks